0: That bad behaviour in the financial sector has now moved seamlessly and hit the mainstream of of the public sector and our politics, and that is really dangerous.
1: Hello and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. In this episode, we have Sam Power, lecturer in politics at the University of Sussex, in conversation with Dame Margaret Hodge. Margaret is a member of the UK Parliament representing the Labour Party. She is widely respected for her work to address economic crime in the UK through the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax and also as a previous chair of the Public Accounts Committee. In the discussion Margaret describes her path into politics to how campaigning on social justice led her to tackling economic crime. Margaret and Sam also debate whether the UK might have reached a crisis point for standards in public life, and crucially, what practical policy responses are available to more effectively tackle these issues. We hope you enjoyed the discussion, and thank you for listening. Thank you very much for joining us on Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Joining us today, we are truly honoured, actually, to have Dame Margaret Hodge, who's been a Labour Party MP since 1994, was a minister in all kinds of departments throughout the New Labour era. Um, And then in opposition has been been no less busy, was the chair of the Public Accounts Committee and was instrumental in holding all kinds of big companies uh, to to account with regards to um, tax in particular. And recently is the chair of the APPG, the All Party Parliamentary Group, into um, anti-corruption and responsible tax. And so, yeah, as I say, truly honoured. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Margaret.
0: Thank you for asking me.
1: So I want, wanted to start off with with some very broad questions about political life I think. Uh, so first first and foremost, you know, in parliament since 1994 but much before that in in local government, what what motivated you to to get into politics in, in the first place?
0: Well, I never meant to have a career in politics. But I was always highly political. So my early political activities were really on sort of campaign issues. I a campaign against nuclear disarmament was my first activity when I was about 16. And then I was active in the anti-apartheid movement, anti-war at the anti-Vietnam war movement. So there was all that. I've always been a campaigner on those big national issues. And then when I first sort of settled down and started having children many, many moons ago. I got involved in community politics around housing, really. It was a time we'd moved into a particularly sort of what is now a fashionable part of London, but wasn't that. that at the time we moved in was very poor, but landlords were winkling tenants out of their controlled tenancies to sell the houses so the woman next door to me literally the landlord put rats into her basement flat where she and she had no inside toilets no inside uh, bathroom facilities at all and they did that to scare her into leaving a home that she'd lived in for you know 30 40 years so that they could then make a profit by selling the house so that got me engaged in local politics uh, and I was busy having children and finding it rather difficult because my previous job had been international research I've got a number of I speak a number of languages and that was difficult to do with young babies because it involved a lot of travel and somebody a friend of mine who was in the Labour Party said to me Go on the council, Margaret. It'll keep you sane when you're changing mappies. So, on the basis of that, I became a counselor. And I often describe politics as a sort of drug that you, you know, once you're engaged in it, it's sort of it's it's very, very difficult to give it up. And it is it is a space in which you can, if you want to make the world a better place, you can act either at the local or the national level to improve the quality of life everybody and I've always been driven by an obsession around equality and whether it's it manifests itself in misogyny or in racism or wherever it is promoting or in class where promoting equality has been the driving value behind everything I've done.
1: It's it's interesting you say the 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 politics uh, is like a drug because another I suppose question that I wanted to ask so, what motivated you? Um, and you kind of spoke to it there. That what, what, what keeps motivating you? Right, you, 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 ke- you came in in opposition, were then, you know, leading a leading figure during the Labour Party in 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 power, and then in opposition, continued to drive your your, your own furrow in many ways. And do, do you think your motivations have changed, or what what means that you continue continue on? That's a really difficult question to ask. Probably, I'm a bit mad
0: to carry on doing it. But I've always been a fighter. I think that throughout my life has uh, been what's driven driven the activity I've been engaged in. And when we went into opposition, it's very interesting because politics increasingly has become a career rather than a passion for many people. And they spend a bit of time in politics, try and climb the greasy pole and then move on to something outside politics. Um, that's not been my persona. And ironically, I often say to people "It's that some of the activities I've been engaged in since we became party of opposition have been more effective in achieving the change I want than stuff I could do as a minister in a Labour-led government. Of course, I did great, you know, that was a great privilege to be a minister and we did achieve great things. But one of the things you learn about politics is you have voice, and if you use that voice effectively, you can um, achieve change both as a minister with executive power and as an elected representative in opposition.
1: That, that again speaks to something that I wanted to ask. I, I just want to add here to to anyone listening. I'll put it in the show notes. Margaret said there that she, she's always been a fighter. There's I can remember very clearly, it would have been in the late 2000s, a fantastic, or maybe just after the 2010 election, a fantastic documentary about you fighting your seat um, against the BNP. I think it was a Channel 4 documentary. There is an incredibly inspiring document. I'll try and find it on somewhere and add it to the show notes because i can remember watching that when it came out with friends actually and, and it shared accommodation and we were all it's, it's just an incredible document of the kind of fighter that you are and the sort of pressure that you're under in that particular campaign is it's quite incredible
0: well for, i mean it is interesting so you know i'm an immigrant so mm. i was born in the uk came here when i was four I'm of Jewish heritage, but my parents had to flee two countries, and my children are the first generation in my family who have not uh, had to flee their home uh, because of fear of persecution. That's quite something. So that, of course, that whole experience, immigrant experience, has informed my politics. I've always felt a bit of an outsider, but I've always felt it was hugely important to challenge and and overcome racism and discrimination. So when in around 2006 in my constituency, which is in East London and was traditionally seen as a very safe labor seat where uh, very little campaigning and connection with uh, the voters took place and people were used to weighing the votes rather than counting the votes. That led to the, that and a change in the demography of the constituency led to the emergence of uh, what was then the the big fascist party in the UK, the British National Party. And they stood in 2006 12 candidates for the local authority and they won every seat for which they stood. Had they stood 51, 52 um, candidates, we would have had a BMP-led council in the UK, they would have undoubtedly won. And that was at a time, I was already of an age where I could have thought of retiring, but I am a fighter and I thought, I'm not going to let the fascists beat me. So we engaged in a four-year, very, very, very difficult uh, but effective campaign to smash the fascists. And it completely changed the way I did politics I completely transformed the local Labour Party. It moved from being a sort of party dominated by sort of middle-aged men who were active in the trade union movement and who spent time in, in those days in smoke-filled rooms to an outward-facing party, which is much more representative of gender ethnicity, race, and age, and looks outward. So we transformed ourselves into an outward-looking party. And I was changed change the way I did my politics. And that has helped me a lot, a lot in this route, this anti-corruption journey that I've been on, because people voted for the fascists in 2006 because they felt we weren't listening to them, and we mm. weren't hearing them, and their fears out of what was a changing demography my constituency barking uh, was transformed by immigration at a quicker pace than any other area in the country, through uh, partly through government policies, the right to buy, and partly just through changing patterns of migration. So suddenly, from being a very close-knit white community... And when I arrived there, I never met so many great grandmothers who lived within, you know, 50 yards of their great grandchildren, a very close knit community. It became a very diverse community. And if your community suddenly changes, your neighbors change, the the faces of children at the school change, the shops, what's sold in the shops changes, that inevitably leads to disquiet. And it's, uh, you know, that was exploited by the bmp by the fascists as a uh, an anti-immigrant uh you know philosophy but our problem the labor party was we simply hadn't listened to genuine fears of change and genuinely genuine needs that even the labor government hadn't addressed like quality of life on council estate or building enough good combs that a price people can afford for local people all those issues so i changed how i do my politics and i now have a And I carry on doing that. I've never taken my foot off the accelerator on that. And the test is always, is what I'm doing, does it help me reconnect with my voters? So I don't need to connect to the Labour Party in the same way or the local trade union movement, although I obviously work with them. But can it help me connect so, it's sort of coffee afternoons where you invite people, listen to them, act on what they say, and communicate with them, or street meetings, or campaigns, or door to door engagement with individual voters. All those are ways in which you can connect with the community. And it took us four years. And um, I often think there are lessons that Labour today could learn. From the seats that we've lost in the north of England, the so-called Red Wall seats, yes. where the Labour Party completely lost connection with its local community. And therefore, it was a sort of protest vote that led people to vote for another party. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer, but it's quite an interesting
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's a fascinating time, and it's almost—I mean, it's a very extreme version, but sort of a test case for precisely what you say. Certain, perhaps, labour woes in in what what you what what you call the red wall. And,
0: and then, just to take that Sam a little bit further, the reason that connected was that mm. when I came back, having won, uh, having completely seen off the BMP in twenty ten, so we defeated them in all their local authority seats, as well as defeating them, and they have now, for the moment become an obsolete political force, although they may well come back in the future. Uh, But having done that, I took that voice of my constituents that I'd been listening to for four years into the work I did in Parliament. So all the questions I asked, all the issues I got engaged in were really what would the good burgers of Barking and Dagenham think about this? And what would they want me to ask on their behalf of a company, a taxpayer and the other people who appeared before me when I was chair of the Public Accounts Committee?
1: So... What, what I think was why your work on the PAC kind of gained so much traction was you were sort of, in some ways, getting these perpetrators of, of tax avoidance to, to justify how they could possibly engage in it. I wonder whether you think from that work, the, the landscape has changed in terms of whether these companies are beginning to pay their fair share, and if not, why not? And if so, how?
0: It, well, it was, you know, 85% of us pay our tax automatically through the BAYE system. So most people, the vast majority of ordinary people in the UK pay their tax without question. And it's only the those of individuals who are very rich or big corporations, not small and medium-sized enterprises, the big corporations who who exploit loopholes in the law to avoid giving into the common pot for the common good. And when I started, I never thought, I mean, again, I never really thought that I was an expert in tax. And it's interesting on this that actually one of the reasons that we all sort of shied away, I think, in the past from thinking about the inequity of the tax system uh, was because the professionals involved engaged in it Spoke a professional tongue that we couldn't understand, and kept the sort of used a technocratic language that meant that it wasn't available to all to, for for us to to get a grip on. And tax belongs to all of us. How we raise it and how we spend it is a matter for all of us. And that's whenever I go into a forum with professionals and they start saying to me, "You just don't understand it." I say to them, it's your job to make me understand it. It's, it's important to me. And I think when I started that work in 2010, 11, it was around about that period by chance, not by intent, but by chance. When I started it, it was generally seen to be cool to avoid tax. It was, you know, you were smart. If, as a business, you did not pay your fair share into the common pot for the common good, if you actually avoided the purpose of legislation to, to reward your yourselves and your and your uh, and the people who benefited from the company, whoever they may be, it was seen as cause cool doing that. And I think that has changed. I think now there is a set sense that actually there is you have a social responsibility to contribute to society and it was always there on things like training or workers conditions or contributing to the community there's always been a sort of social responsibility agenda it was just the taxes outside it i think tax is coming in but i have to say you know we might have started changing the mood but there is still an army of enablers who support the very rich and the big corporations in exploiting loopholes in the law that they themselves have often written to uh, avoid paying their fair share. I think the most egregious system, the egregious schemes have gone, but there is still far too much around. The tax authorities are always playing catch-up, and the enablers are making too much money out of the advice they give that enables people to avoid the tax. I think there's also this great thing that when you talk to the big four, or any of the, you know, it's accountants, it's bankers, it's lawyers, it's a whole stream of people. When you talk to them about this, they always say there's a, a difference between avoidance and evasion, and I find that a bit of a blurred distinction. I'm not an expert in writing the technical rules, but I know about the intent of what we me- we mean to do, and very often it's the professionals who support government in writing the rules. Uh, and yet they then come out of government and immediately exploit the loopholes they often themselves have created.
1: So within that, I've got loads of fascinating follow-ups about who who these enablers are, um, which I'll get onto in a minute, but you touched on something there about avoidance and evasion, and this is quite often drawn as, you know, there's two things, tax avoidance and tax evasion, but for you what it seems like you're saying there is that they're, they're one and the same, or how, how do you see the difference between tax avoidance
0: and tax evasion? I talk about all this as a spectrum, actually. So we start off, you know, people pay their cleaners by cash,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and that is avoiding, so the cleaner avoids tax. You may then get onto that uh, threshold, which is and that uh, everybody buys an ISA, and that is sort of a way also of, of minimizing your tax bill by saving so and that's you know encouraged by government so there's sort of stuff around there that is thought to be okay you then might pay your builder cash where or your plumber cash and that is sort of considered bad behavior and that quickly morphs into much more aggressive tax avoidance schemes which have been around for you know i think there are fewer i think we're tougher on them today but they are still around and the big companies the googles and you know the, the starbucks And the Amazons, whom we interviewed in probably 2013 or 2012, 13, around that, they are still exploiting loopholes and not paying a fair share of tax on the profits they make from the activity they undertake in our jurisdictions. And I think what has been so interesting about my journey on this, so, you know, you start off on this sort of spectrum, and then it moves into economic crime, Mm. corruption. You know, and money laundering and drug smuggling and terrorism and all those things. And what I think has been particularly scary over recent times, which I know your institute has worked on, is that what was originally seen as financial crime has now infected the public realm. So you see it in public services. And and furthermore, particularly under the Boris Johnson regime, it's infected our politics. So there's been a really that sort of corrupt that bad behaviour in the financial sector has now moved seamlessly and um, hit the mainstream of the pu- public of the public sector and our politics and that is really dangerous.
1: So that's that, that's quite interesting. You're what what you're saying there is that we, we have this i suppose tax evasion tax avoidance and as you suggested you know tax evasion was seen as kind of a, a cool thing to do when when you started tax at, avoidance
0: um, tax avoidance was seen as a cool thing yeah,
1: to do tax and evasion. perhaps that kind of attitude to some extent infected the let's say the body politic or uh, it, that such that it it sort of encouraged and spread to other areas like economic crime and perhaps even public life. Is that is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I put it all back to if you take it, I think both Labour and Conservative governments are responsible for the environment in which particularly the financial services sector now operates in the UK. And that facilitates and uh, enables bad behavior from avoidance to evasion to economic crime to take place. So you have the big bang under Mrs. Thatcher. You then moved into the labor era when massive deregulation of the financial services sector and the financial ser- growth of the financial services sector and attracting capital to the UK was seen as paramount. And that has meant that we have a regulatory framework which um, attracts dirty money. And we also have never put enough money into enforcement so that even where we have got rules which should ensure good behaviour, where they are broken, the enforcement agencies never uh, do so little to pursue the wrongdoers. And we have not enough transparency and we have zero accountability of all these agencies to you and me, or to the public through parliament, is the way I would put it, to see what's happening so that we can really bear down on de- on, on on this bad behaviour. I mean, we now say that uh, economic crime and it's costing the UK economy, it's an incredible figure, £290 billion, and I think that is probably an underestimate. It's an estimate that comes from our own enforcement agencies. But that is, if you think that that's a, you know, over a quarter of total public expenditure, two hundred and ninety billion pounds a year, and we have now become a jurisdiction of choice for corrupt and dirty money, and our ability to to to, to pursue it is is abysmal, our funding of it is meagre and hopeless, and we will never build sustainable economic prosperity on the back of dirty money because that. You know, in a sense, Britain's success, particularly in the financial services sector, depended on our reputation for integrity and the rule of law. And as we lose that and become increasingly seen as a uh, a good place to hide your money or to do corrupt activity, we lose that reputation and clean money will go elsewhere. There's plenty of clean money in the world in pension funds and everything which could really enable us to have a thriving financial services sector. We don't need the dirty money. And actually, I would argue that if we don't drive it out, we'll lose that clean money. And in the longer term, our financial service sector will be vulnerable to com- competition.
1: So th- this picture of, I suppose, let's say, you know, deregulation from, for, from the 80s onwards, and then I suppose this deregulation instilling a culture, which of which something like tax avoidance becomes a part of, which then it's, which then leads on to the, the the slight infection of the, the, the body politic, and the work that you've been doing in the all party parliamentary group in anti corruption, responsible tax speaks to this with regards to as you as you hinted at there, you know your findings that the UK has become the jurisdiction of choice for dirty money, your your, your reports on economic crime. How do you put the genie back in the bottle there? What can we do about it? Well, I think
0: I would argue that you, you there are four pillars of reform. You need smarter regulation. You need tougher enforcement. You need much greater transparency. And you need proper accountability. Those are the four pillars. And on the regulation, uh, I think, let me take two examples there, although there are many more. At the moment, it costs £12 to establish a company in the uk in company's house you are supposed to say who is the beneficial owner of the company but there is absolutely no checking of the identity information that is given to company house there's no raising of red flags or anything like that and um it's all done within a few hours so that very lax unchecked framework gives uh bad people, the opportunity to establish companies with ease from abroad, they can establish them from the British Virgin Isles, you know, our relationship with our tax havens has been another key issue that has driven dirty money, I think, into the UK. So we need to, and you see, for example, in the money coming out, Russian oligarchs money coming out of Russia, that they establish a network of companies across a whole range of jurisdictions, and then they move their money out of Russia through these companies, and it's very, very difficult to trace and eventually track it and follow the money. And then eventually they can bring it into the UK by buying property or by buying, uh, sending their children to school to expensive private schools here or buying expensive jewellery or whatever. So that easy corporate structure has been a facilitator of uh crime and corruption so we need to reform that uh we need to ensure not make it more necessarily. you know we want to encourage company formation in here in the uk but 12 pounds could be raised to 50 pounds still very cheap you could use that money you could ring fence the money and use it to reform companies house so that they take do proper identification of, of uh, uh, who the beneficial owner is through a whole lot of data that is available. Uh, they And they also interrogate the data so they can raise red flags. And you would also have to, I think, there um, have some um, regulation of those uh, bodies that are involved in helping companies or individuals to set up uh, set up new entities, so-called company service providers, so that they too act in an appropriate way and don't support corruption, money laundering, uh, and oligarchs in, in in economic crime. So that would be one reform. Another, really, and I think the government is in the UK is going to deliver that in the economic crime bill which has been published as I speak to you this morning. So I have yet to look at the details of the bill. Another, another really important regulatory change, which the government is so far not keen on doing, so we will be pushing hard from my um, cross-party group on this issue, is I've said before that a lot of bad behaviour from tax avoidance through to, to, through to uh, money laundering is enabled and facilitated by the professionals like the accountants and the lawyers and the banks and the advisors. And these, uh, in the current legal framework, they get away scot-free. They are not held to public account. And we think you do require a change in legislation there which uh, would put an onus on directors of these organizations. They would have a duty to prevent economic crime. And our rationale, and that would put an onus on the individuals, whether they, you know, whether they're directors of banks or they are partners in a in a in a big accountancy firm, onus to ensure that the work they did was not fostering economic crime. And the importance of that, to give you an analogy from the UK, is if you look back, I mean, a long time now, there used to be a lot of deaths on building sites because contractors didn't really care about the um, health and safety standards at work. And it was only when we legislated to put a personal liability on those running the construction companies to ensure health and safety standards in their organization that suddenly, miraculously, overnight, those standards improved and the deaths almost entirely were eliminated. So this idea of a failure to prevent is a really good preventative tool. It's not just that we want to lock up a whole load of accountants and bankers. We want them to prevent them from engaging in activity. So that's sort of two examples on the regulation side. On the enforcement side, we're just miserably underfunding our enforcement agencies. And if you look at their effectiveness um, over time, There are hardly, uh, you know, the National Crime Agency, there's been a a cut of a third in the number of investigations that they undertake. Economic crime is down the agenda of all the agencies that are concerned. The Serious Fraud Office is doing hardly anything now. So our view is the government has introduced an economic crime levy on banks to fund enforcement agencies. That will bring a little bit more money in. We think the government should match that economic crime. Uh, the money raised from the private sector should be matched by the public sector. And we also think if you introduced a system whereby confiscation of assets and therefore uh, money that was gotten from pursuing economic crime by all the enforcement agencies was reinvested in those agencies that would start giving you the strength that other nations have, thinking particularly of America or Italy in, 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 in really having a strong army of people pursuing the wrongdoers in the financial, in the financial sector. So that would be one thing. The other thing is there's a lot of self-regulation that takes, is supposed to take place of all these enablers. It doesn't. And uh, the self-regulation bodies aren't themselves properly monitored uh, to ensure that they, you know, get rid of wrongdoers from their profession. And we would see a, an important reform of the regulatory framework there to be much tougher on wrongdoers. So those are two examples on enforcement that we would take. And then on transparency, we have already won a big battle as backbenchers, and that's you know, how it's interesting trying to build these cross-party alliances in that registers of beneficial ownership of companies didn't exist, or still doesn't actually, but never existed in the overseas territories and the Crown dependencies. The overseas territories are our, ta- and Crown dependencies are the tax havens. And if you look at things like the Panama Papers, over half of the entities cited there have a presence in the British Virgin Islands so they are absolutely central to the trade and dirty money so we as backbenchers on a cross-party way force the government to get the crown dependencies and 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 overseas territories to introduce um public registers beneficial ownership they still haven't done it properly uh, they still have an enact in it. So we, we have to pursue that. And we think actually you have to do the same for trusts and you have to also do the same probably for land because uh, uh, cor- corruption takes place, not just through companies, but as you tighten up the transparency there, you uh, find that the money leaks into, uh, into other areas. So that would be an example of transparency. And then accountability is really important. You know, we constantly, we do pass new laws to try and give ourselves new tools to fight economic crime, but we never know how well they're doing. We don't know how much the enforcement agencies are doing. When I was doing tax avoidance, you know, we were told there were no sweetheart deals being entered into by HMRC with uh, big companies, and it was only through a whistleblower leak that we found that actually a sweetheart deal had taken place. There is no transparency because of confidentiality of taxpayers' interest. So all those things have to be accountable. And I think there are various mechanisms that you could use. But one that I would favour would be that setting up a cross-party parliamentary group modelled on the security committee that we have in Parliament Uh, where people could call for the papers around individual tax deals or could call for the papers around allegations of of, uh, money laundering and satisfy themselves that actually the appropriate action was taken and then actually produce systemic reports, reports about systems rather than individual cases based on their understanding of the individual cases. Those are sort of the examples. I mean, there's plenty of other things that we think need to happen, but those are the sort of examples around those four pillars mm. of the action that we think the UK government needs to take if it's serious about tackling dirty money.
1: So the fantastic kind of holistic approach to to solving this, this, this kind of thing, and b- broadly, you know, no, no, no further questions. But the <laughs> final thing I wanted to... Uh, to, to talk to you about, i mean so so you mentioned theres uh, let's let's say deregulation, which sort of inevitably leads to self regulation, and we I, I suppose thinking about recent British politics um, and your, the, the, this discussion about how perhaps let's say poor standards it, it sort of infected perhaps lots of different systems um, and let's let, let's think about the current p- politics in the UK we're just out of a at least at least three year period um, where I know it's been a time where I'm contacted quite a lot to talk about standards in public life and um, and whether we've reached a crisis point. And particularly during the last, let's say 18 months of the, the, the Johnson administration, this was, this was questioned again and again due to the various scandals that came out. And I'd be really interested in your kind of take on that. Do you think we have reached a crisis of uh, of standards perhaps ethics in british politics in british political life
0: yes there has always been well, there've always been elements of bad behavior in politics on the fringes but in the past if it ever it went when it emerged people were you know it became a big story in the press and people were punished and paid a price for it so, you can even go back to Harold Wilson and his honors list. You know, that wasn't, or you go back, or you go to cash for questions under um, uh, the Major administration, or you go to cash for honors under the Blair administration. These were on the fringes. They were, they, and when they came to the open, people paid a heavy price for them. Now, you hardly notice it. You know, cash for honors is taken as red and uh, we've ironically the only way in which as this has finally I think come to a position where we can start acting against it has been sadly on the back of the um invasion of ukraine by the russians and therefore the focus on uh, russian oligarchs and, and and the role they've played but you know the 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 way in which cash has been used to buy access, influence policy, get contracts, get positions of power—all that has really intensified. Uh, certainly under Boris Johnson, who sort of had totally lost his moral compass uh, and lost Britain's moral compass, and I'm ashamed of it. And you, you know, uh, th- th- there, are too ma- there are too many examples to cite here. You know, under COVID, if you think of the way those COVID contracts were were allocated to uh, friends and contacts with no fair competition. That's outrageous. That's public. That's your money and my money. It's our taxpayers' money. It's back to where I started, in a way, on this journey. It's not their money. It's our money. It's not Conservative Party money. It's certainly not individuals' money. It's our money, and therefore we, we have a right to see that it's properly spent. And there's proper transparency. So I think again, under those four pillars—through regulation, enforcement, transparency, and accountability—we need a whole set of reforms, both in 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 how contracts are let uh, are let by uh, you, you, using our taxpayers' money, and the way in which politics um, takes place. So I think I don't know what this new new administration will do about it. I don't if she's not even going to replace the position of uh, somebody to advise her on ethics and standards. That doesn't bode well for her determination, Liz Truss's determination to tackle, which I think is a really insidious, terrible, terrible well let, let me tell you this is a sort of it's a bit of a personal story but from my work on the public accounts committee i'm often asked to speak at uh, at events uh, as to you know uh, commonwealth parliamentary events to, where we advise jurisdictions that have a tradition of corruption on how to open to public account and to try and eliminate corruption. I used to do that, you know, with absolute clarity, taking myself back to 2015. Now I feel ashamed doing it because I think things are taking place here in the UK which aren't that different for some of the from some of the corrupt activities that traditionally was associated with uh, more with developing nations and 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 poorer countries.
1: So a uh, final question, I suppose. It, again, what 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 can we do about that? That's practical. I kind of understand the that there's a certain logic behind that. Pure accountability, absolute accountability, would get in the way of certain forms of governance in in, in Parliament, say. The, 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 that, that you need to find a balance there you need to find a balance between allowing people to do their jobs but also keeping them keeping them in check and ensuring that wrongdoing is is is, is punished is investigated and punished so what needs to change because I think what we have at the moment is you know self self-regulation broadly speaking of, of course there's some oversight measures but broadly speaking self-regulation under what Peter Hennessy called, you know, the good, good chap theory of governance, which is that Parliament is embodied by people that generally do the right thing. What happens when it's not? Well, it's a similar
0: set of, of, of standards that you've got to so, um, introduce. So you you need to separate, uh, have a completely independent um, arbiter of, uh, of, of behaviour uh, you need an independent arbiter of public appointments. You know that is is currently overridden. You need a total reform of public procurement. Um, it, it's a scat. It, it's a well. Actually, it, it, just to say this, over fifty percent of public spending now on goods and services, not public spending on transfer payments, you know, pensions or benefits. Uh, over fifty percent is now provided through third parties, mainly private sector bodies. In that climate, you have got to have absolutely tough, transparent, accountable rules to ensure that that procurement is not corrupt. So you need a total uh, reform there. You need, um, God, I mean, I can go on and on about, uh, you need to strengthen parliamentary oversight of the executive. That has diminished. You need, what we've also seen, you need a proper proper respect for the rule of law. Uh, When uh, the courts found that we had behaved improperly over proroguing Parliament during the Brexit debate, the response of the government at that time was to not think, God, we've got to act properly. They immediately thought, how can we change the rules for judicial review so that we don't get in this hassle again? And how can we change the appointments of judges so we get people more empathetic to our view? I mean, that's a complete, you know, so you need total respect for the rule of law. You need proper independence of the media and You know the the attacks on the BBC are very worrying, and the privatization of Channel Four doesn't help. You need a truly independent uh, civil service that is willing to speak truth to power. So, sacking your permanent secretary on day one, when you're a new in in the Treasury, when you're a new administration again, is scary. And only putting in um, non-executive directors who share. Your political beliefs, rather than who can look at efficiency, effectiveness, and economy of public expenditure, is scary. So all those areas need to be addressed if we're to restore credible, trusted governance. And then on the, we need pub, You know, do you need on, on the politics of it. This money influencing the influence of money in political parties and the donations of money to individual MPs has got to all be massively overhauled. And again, I would make the point that whilst the Russians have put more money into the Conservative Party, we have also had the case of the Chinese putting money into Labour politicians. So this isn't a partisan issue. This is an issue for
1: politics in the round so root and branch reform uh there, frankly uh, well i i mean I, I i don't know if people listening get the impression about this but I, I could talk about this literally all day but unfortunately we don't have literally all day and um, uh, perhaps another time but so so i just I want, want to want to draw it to a close there and just say thank you ever so much for being so generous with your time i know to to, to everybody time is a precious resource and it's something that i really appreciate you giving up so uh thanks ever so much for a really really interesting discussion of various ways in which um particularly in british in the B- british political life and also in, in other areas and um, corruption has become a problem and certainly certain solutions to it so thanks ever so much for, for joining us and giving us your time